Praise the Lord for the opportunity to open His Scriptures together. Do that with me, if you would, this morning by turning in your Bible to Psalm 60. Psalm 60 will be our text today. Twelve verses that give us a sober account of victory or sober victory celebration. There is an interesting take that David has, Israel's greatest general and king. Prior to Christ, of course, there's an interesting take that he has on God's sovereign intervention in the life course of his people that he is called to minister to as magistrate. And here there's much to learn for us as well, remembering that David himself is a type of Christ. And in these passages we see some of the messianic truth and clarity bleeding forth from David's pen and singing forth from his lips as we read these words, this song. So with your Bible open to Psalm 60, and out of reverence for the Scriptures, stand with me if you would and if you're able, and let us read these words together. This morning, under the title, To the Choir Master, According to Shushan Edith, a miktam of David, for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharim, and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. We have the Word of God in verse 1, which continues, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry, O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink and made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, say law, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Verse 6, God has spoken in His holiness. With exultation I will divide up Sechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph, verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly, for it is He who will tread down our foes. This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 60 opens with the longest title in all the Psalter, to the choir master according to Shushan. Just a few words we'll have in a moment as to the meaning of that title. But if you have in your Bibles, or if you have a bookmarker and want to put it in 2 Chronicles 18, we'll get a little bit more of the background behind the historical occasion for the inspiration of this psalm. Psalm 60 opens with this lengthy title, and in this it provides us with insightful and surprising background, the historical information that undergirds this proclamation and this song of worship. It seems clear from this paragraph that this opening paragraph of introduction and title, that Psalm 60 was written as an anthem, if you will, to commemorate the summarily victorious warfare campaigns of Israel's greatest general, David himself. Remember that David was commissioned by God and 
part and in large part to swing the sword against the foes of God's people. The foes of the people of God had encroached on the borders, largely due to Saul himself, the king that preceded him, his negligence, his unfaithfulness. So partially as judgment and, uh, and combined with consequences of unwise rule, the kings that surrounded the nation of Israel had gotten closer and braver and begun to take territory, and now David was commissioned to beat them back. This is a song that commemorates his success in doing so. Given this context, however, we find this warrior's song is dramatically unique. This is not your average song of gloating victory over enemies once they are subdued. This, after all, is not the self-exalting impulse we find here of festal parades or nationalistic patriotism of a great emperor or an empire that has proven itself powerful over its neighbors and then lifts up its songs of triumph. It is nothing like, that is to say, the brash promises, boasts, and bluffs or account of any of the neighboring kings or conquests that we find in the archaeological record. In all of the Near Eastern nations, you know, just as a brief aside, in secular academia, in college classes, if you just take world religions or ancient societies, you will find all these superficial comparisons. The ancient Hebrews were much like their Semitic neighbors you might find in this and that. And they look for comparisons. These are all, I submit to you, superficial. What is missed by the pagan eye of the scholar is the substantial differences. David's song is a substantial difference in how a king responds to victory than all of the kings around him. If you dig up the artifacts of the ancient Assyrians, if you look upon the walls and halls of great temples and palaces built by the Babylonians, if you look across the Persian, Medo-Persian, and Roman empires all the way through, through our day, even if you rifle through the history books of our nation, any Western empire, French, Spanish, American, otherwise, you will not see this kind of language generally used to commemorate the success of a great king, battle campaign, or a particular era of history. This passage right here, after David's great success, has humility sown through it, even a warning for his generations and generations that would succeed them to recognize that it is God alone who has earned them the victory. There is no cause for gloating, for proud boasting, for bluffs, or any uh, self-indulgence as if our strength has gained us the victory. Instead, Psalm 60 is a sober and a humble, even alarming word of caution to mankind as well as a praise to God. Psalm 60 instructs godly leaders on how, and godly cultures, I would submit, on how to memorialize victories. What if God answers prayer? In many ways, even in the course of a nation's history, how ought we praise Him? How ought we acknowledge that? What does thankfulness and humility look like when God intervenes for people who don't deserve it on behalf of His great name? What ought the spirit of, let's say, the 4th of July in our nation, an independent celebration contain as a people that acknowledges the sovereignty of God and their total dependence on Him? Well, a parade going down the main street of any given town in America may not be a good example at all. It may be just a, uh, just a loathsome celebration 
uh, feasting and uh, celebrating, celebrating, and just another excuse for drunken revelries and self-indulgence and not even so much as a token nod to the God who has preserved us by his sovereign hand from the day of our inception until now. Most celebrations of this kind of nationalistic self-idolatry and worship just are debased. There really aren't, there isn't much meaning to them at all. However, Psalm 60 provides for us an occasion to worship God and words that we ought to employ to worship God when we stand back for a moment and recount His amazing grace and providence to us and undeserving people, to any people that He has been long-suffering with. Psalm 60 provides us, therefore, a model for sober celebration and valuable instruction. Let's consider Psalm 60. It's 12 verses under three headings this morning, or under three main points. The heading for today's message is the message uh, from three voices in Psalm 60. So the message of Psalm 60 comes to us in three voices. First of all, there's the voice of the people, if you will, in verses 1 through 5. The orientation of the song is from the people to God and crying out in verses 1 through 5. The orientation then shifts in verses 6 through 8 from God to the people, or from God by proclamation for all peoples. And thirdly, this morning, there's, if you will, the voice of the king in verses 9 through 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city, he asks. Who will lead me to Edom? And then he goes on to re- in a representative prayer to speak on behalf of his pressing situation and on behalf of the people he represents. So the message of Psalm 60 comes to us in three voices, Let's consider them this morning. First of all, the voice of the people. The message of Psalm 60 comes to us in verses 1 through 5 from a broken people, aware of their desperate plight, crying out to God with these words. Verse 1, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, say law, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Turning over to Second Chronicles for a moment, what was the situation surrounding the authorship of this psalm? Well, I submit to you it's surprising at first because what we read of in 2 Chronicles 18 does not necessarily immediately strike you as a correlation event for these words of desperate plea and cry, verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 60. This was a summary of the conquests of David in 2 Chronicles in the historical record. And we read such things as follows in verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat, that had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Uh, I think this is the wrong passage. First Chronicles 18 is probably, maybe that's closer to where I need to be. That's right. I'm sorry, First Chronicles 18. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its villages out of the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, uh, Zobah, Hamath, 
and he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots, seven thousand horsemen, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help, Hadezer, uh, king of Zobah, David struck down twenty-two thousand men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Tibbath and from Kun, the cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars and the vessels of bronze. It, goes on to, or it continues to describe David's various exploits over the peoples in this region until we get to verse 14. And in summary, it says, So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. Moving back to our primary text in Psalm 60, this account, and also in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 7, both of them correspond to the title, which is to the choir master according to Shushan Edith, which means, as best we can figure, the Lily of the Testimony, perhaps a poetic title, the name of a psalm or something of the kind or a type of poetry. Scholars aren't quite sure. A miktam, again, seems to be a designation of a kind of poetry or song of David for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zobah. And those two references, Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, referred to regions of conquest. Uh, Syria, Mesopotamia, literally the land between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. So again, there's some mystery here in the original language. But what seems to be indicated in the title is that when David and company, his generals such as Joab, combined with his efforts, were victorious in the whole region of Mesopotamia over their enemies, when they had gained the upper hand by for example, striking down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt, that occasion then warranted this psalm. So I ask you again, after your last enemy has been defeated, and after every king, strong as he may be, thoroughly equipped with all his chariots and all the swordsmen and horses that he could boast, has been totally defeated and routed by your hand, does it make sense to you that you would then sing a song, O God, you have broken our defenses. You have been angry, O restore us. What is going on here? Well, you see, David does not forget the reason why he had to fight the enemies in the first place. He's recognizing that God, God's hand in the entirety of the event. He knows that Saul came under severe judgment from the Lord falling on his own sword along with his forces who were destroyed by the Philistines and the other armies because of his unfaithfulness to the Lord. When David inherited his kingdom, he inherited a mess. It was in chaos. The borders were overrun by the ungodly. The pagans had maintained holdouts in almost every nook and cranny and corner of the kingdom. They were boldly opposing the people of God. David recognized this 
as, as a severe situation, not just because their immediate uh, safety and well-being was threatened by the presence of enemies, but more importantly, that this was evidence of God's judgment on the land on account of their great sin before His name. David knew that there was no way, by mere sword power, he could beat back the armies of the wicked ones without acknowledging the reason that God had allowed them to encroach on their land in the first place. A military campaign against the enemies of a people without repentance is futility. Even if it were to be militarily successful, you might ask the question in a different see in the New Testament, what would it profit a people, a society, a nation, gain peace and to lose their soul? I fear, brothers and sisters, that when we go to the voting booth, most of us Christian Americans, you know, so-called the greater evangelical community this fall, we may be governed by a desire for peace, well-being, prosperity, jobs, security, economy, but there may be way down on the list repentance or even question in the back of our minds. Why do we feel insecure? Why are there enemies within and without? Why is there conditions that we suffer in this land that make us feel disconcerted, out of sorts, and threatened on every side? You see, David understood something that most of the church in America today does not. When enemies encroach, the first question is, what's wrong? Where have we transgressed God's law? Where might there be room for repentance? How can we be in good standing with Him? David knows this, and David recognizes this, recognizes this even in his victory owed after defeating his enemies. This is the sense, I believe, why he says this song is for instruction in the title. It's a miktam of David for instruction. What would part of the instruction be? Remember, in your day of victory, don't forget why you were assaulted in the first place. And also don't forget the power that gained you the victory itself. The reason that you came in these dire straits is because there was sin to be repented of. And the reason you gained the upper hand over your enemies is because the Lord has fought your battles for you. You are just a secondary player. He is the primary king of this land who champions our cause. So David lays out his psalm in this way. This is the title lesson that the people of God need to hear. And when the people of God, the voice from the people, echoes to God in humility, recognizing their state, you have rejected us and broken our defenses, David knows they will be stronger than ever. Better a fortified heart than a fortified border. Re better a people rooted and grounded in Christ than a war machine above and beyond what any other nation can boast. This is the message. Secondly, under the voices, or the message from the voices of Psalm 60, beyond the title lesson, we have a compare and a contrast, totter versus banner. We see two ideas in the text in verses 2 and 4. First is the instability of their prior condition. Secondly is the cause for hope. Compare these verses with me as we read. Notice verse 2. Speaking from the people to the Lord, they recognize you have made the land to quake, you have torn it open. Then there's this cry, repair, repair its breaches, for it totters. There is gross and widespread instability in the land. 
There is no cause under these conditions as they recognize their plight to remain or to feel secure or assured. The people have lost their point of reference. They don't feel safe. They don't know where to turn. Confusion has overtaken the land. And people are running around chasing this and that, but to no avail. This is the idea of the land quaking and tearing open. It's using the poetic imagery of an earthquake to conjure up in your mind what people will do under such circumstances. Imagine if you're all, or imagine if you will, in a third world, or a, you know, kind of a, a communist country or something, where you see those impressive lines and regimens of soldiers standing and saluting at, at the command of the great potentate, right? So you have like the Kremlin or something, and you have these, you know, off into the distance and the horizon, you have all these uh, soldiers standing at attention. Everything, all their uniforms are pressed, all of their uh, armaments, their weapons are in fine working order, their helmets are glinting in the sun, and they're listening to the Fuhrer command them. And it's an imposing picture, is it not? Now imagine this. Imagine they're standing over the San Andreas Fault or something of the kind, and the earth begins to shake, and a chasm opens up. What happens to those ranks? Are, are, they're not so impressive anymore, are they? They begin to drop their rifles, scramble for safety, push each other over, and a stampede erupts as they run away from the earth, shattering, cracking, and breaking. In the, rea in the reality of the situation, this is what David envisions. In the eye of the Spirit, he knows that there is no such thing as security on the surface without secure foundation spiritually in his land. So in this, in this case then, as he has recognized that the land is quaking, it's torn open, it needs repair, it totters on the precipice of destruction, then he responds in verse 4, you have set up a banner, notice the contrast, for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, say law. What is a banner? A banner is a standard, it's an emblem, it's a point of unity, it's a motto, it's a rallying cry. David says that the banner, the motto, the standard, the unity, the patriotism, if you will, that really has value is that and only that which is found in the Lord. He says, you have set up a banner. No mere man, no mere power on this earth is a sufficient source to unify, to galvanize, and to preserve his people for the future. We might set up another banner, you know, uh, humanistically, make Israel great again. And everybody's just going to, you know, a deep throaty roar rises from every true nationalistic Israelite. Make Israel great again. Is that a true banner? Is that a standard? Does it sound familiar? I tell you, there's no motto, no rallying cry, no banner, no standard, no slogan, no campaign message that has any worth or value when a nation is spiritually tottering. When there's an earthquake of the soul, it doesn't matter the cry that comes from the pagan, you know, get your guns, get your guns. What if you train all the weapons at the fissure in the earth and begin to shoot the earthquake under your feet? Will it, will it save you? Of course not. The picture is ridiculous. When God is your enemy, there is nowhere to run. But when God is your champion, there is nowhere you need to run. That is the picture. David says that ultimate assurance and security is in the banner that Christ has set up over any people. Take refuge in Him. Notice there's another contrasting picture, if you will, 
in two more verses in this section, verse 3 and verse 5. Here we have the difference of staggering with a cup of wine and deliverance by God's mighty hand. Verse 3, you have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. But notice as we contrast in verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. You may be familiar with the language of cup, a bitter cup. It's a picture in the scriptures. It's analogy, an illustration of judgment. The prophets use it. Later in this message, we'll close in Matthew 26, Christ uses it. In Jeremiah chapter 25, 15 through 38, the bitter dregs of wine as a cup mixed with the wrath of God and His fury is a picture in the Bible to describe the conditions or the forcing down the throats of those who deserve it, just dues for their unfaithfulness. This is the staggering the people are experiencing is due to that cup of judgment that sends the nation, the people, the society reeling, losing their bearings. And they, under these conditions, they lose their better judgment. They, they become a danger to themselves and to others. Just like a drunken man cannot be trusted, nor can he be reasoned with. You know, many people think the answer to our political problems or otherwise these days, our social is, ills is just, oh, it's the lack of common sense, which is another way of saying, well, just be reasonable about this. Well, if you sat down with a drunken man and opened up a book of logic and said, you know, you've just committed an equivocation fallacy, what's he going to do? He'll slur his speech a little bit, he'll call you an ugly name, and he'll continue staggering about. If you approach him and say, well, you see here that we can't afford this in the past, it's never worked, and the, and the path to success is historically marked by thus and so, what will the drunken man do? He will not respond with any cogent thoughts. His real problem is his frame of mind and soul. It's his state of mental being. He needs to be healed from the inside before he can be assured of anything positive and productive on the outside. David recognizes the state that his nation was in the staggering drunkenness was because God had force-fed them the judgment that they deserved. And their only hope under these circumstances was to be sobered up. Sobered up, that is to say, by God's deliverance. Salvation comes by the right hand of God alone. That message, that proclamation, that truth of the Word of God spoken is the smelling salts to awaken us from a drunken stupor. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that hope extends to every area. It is so easy for us to buy hope, to buy peace of mind, by shopping at all the false imposters, insurance over here, promises over there, whatever might satisfy for a brief moment our fears or our anxieties. But the scriptures tell us time and again that all of these are futile, and in the end lead to destruction. There is salvation by the right hand of God alone. The picture of right hand in the Bible is that which you are empowered to do on purpose. That which you have the power to do on purpose. Typically, if you're right-handed, you'd use your right hand to execute any number of things in the course of your day, even without thinking about it. It's simply the way you translate your intentions into, into actions. And in this way, the right hand of God is pictured here. The right hand of God, 
his intentions exercised in actions in history is the only force to be aligned with that will bring deliverance, that will bring salvation. We see the right hand of God all through history, do we not? We see the right hand of God preserving the seed of the Messiah all the way through until this point. We see the right hand of God anointing David as the chosen king of Israel to show forth in typological form who Christ would be. We see the right hand of God promising him by covenant that there will be one of your lineage reigning and ruling forever. We see the right hand of our God intervening in the incarnation, placing Christ in the womb of a virgin. We see the right hand of God when Christ preaches the kingdom, when he embraces the cross, when he dies a death for sinners, when he rises from the dead, when he ascends before his Father. And even now, the right hand of God rules and reigns, putting his enemies in subjection under his feet from the right hand of the Father. To this right hand, David calls his people to trust. To this right hand, brothers and sisters, we are called to trust this day. This is the message from the people to their Lord. We have staggered, yes, Lord, because we deserved and have drunk the cup of your chastisement to some degree. Sober us up by reminding us that salvation, security, hope, and assurance is found in your power, in your gospel alone. The second major point this morning, the message of Psalm 50, 60, comes to us in a second voice. This is a voice from God speaking down now to earth. So imagine the situation reverses. as we read these three verses, 6 through 8. God has spoken in His holiness. With exultation I will divide up Sechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. This is the message of unequivocal authority, the sovereign power of God demonstrated by geographic and sociopolitical, if you will, analogy. There is connotational value, that is, there's associations in your mind, in our mind that ought to come to the fore when we hear all these places, all these people's names. Now, you may be like me and needing to do a little study to realize what those are. I'll try to give you a few overview associations this morning. Thus, we will see the connotational value of these nine or these geographical references. By the way, Psalm 108, 7 through 9 picks up this refrain and chorus again. It was our worship text today. There are many times in Scripture. These two accounts testify that God uses names such as these, Sechem, Succoth, Gilead, Manasseh, from Judah, Moab, Edom, Philistia, to represent something else. So what is it? Well, I submit to you, God is employing this analogy, these, the imagery and the example, the illustration of these peoples to show His sovereignty and to demonstrate it in four categorical illustrations. And very simply, they are these, just Four words I chose to identify the themes. The first, the first is promise. So God is showing by associating or by referring to Sechem and Succoth the power of his promise. Secondly, with Gilead and Manasseh, he is showing his power of possession. Thirdly, with Ephraim and Judah, he is show, demonstrating his power in his purposes. 
And fourthly, summoning Moab, Philistia, and Edom, all three, he is demonstrating perdition, his power through perdition. So promise, possession, purpose, and perdition. First of all, Sechem and Succoth. God has spoken in his holiness. So first of all, holiness, before we get to those two geographical references, identifies that in this voice, when God interjects speaking to man, it is an entirely different category. God has spoken in his otherness, his uniqueness, his, uh, un, his power that cannot be challenged or competed with. In his purity and divinity and glory, God has proclaimed. So God has proclaimed the following, with exultation, I will divide up Sechem and portion out the vale or valley of Succoth. Sechem and Succoth appear time and again in the scriptures. If you'll mark this for further study, you'll find one of the first uh, mentions of Sechem in Genesis 12, verses 6 through 7. Abraham had been called out from the pagan people and sent on a wandering journey following God's promise. And he entered into a land he had not known and rested there for a moment in Succoth. I'm sorry, Sechem. And while he was in Sechem, he received a promise from the Lord that he would inherit the promised land. And to my knowledge, that is the first altar that Abraham erected in the promised land. So when you hear the reference to Sechem, it's as if we hear that promise and threshold of the promised land. Abraham's first altar the promise that God is in charge of this property and he will divide it as a demonstration of his power among his peoples. The second reference under, uh, the second reference under promise is Succoth. And this is that famous location right on the precipice of Canaan where after Joshua or Moses had delivered the people as his agent of deliverance from Egypt, and they had gone through their wanderings and right here they're going to make this covenant and enter into the promised land under Joshua. This happens at Succoth. At Succoth, the law of God is memorialized. It's written down. It's chiseled in stone. It's set up as a monument. At Succoth, the people of God are reminded of the promise of God to divide up the land and give it to them. At Succoth, they're reminded that the right hand of the Lord in history will portion out, according to his promise, each part of the land according to the tribes as he has predetermined. You see the power of God to divide up Sechem, to portion out the valley of Succoth. God has spoken in his holiness. What has he revealed? He owns all this real estate by this example, and he will divide it up and give it out as he will, because he is sovereign, because he is God, because he keeps his promises. How about possession? In verse 7, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine. Looking more closely at these references, one is on the east side of Jordan, the other is on the west. The whole scope of this land is the Lord's. We read in the Psalms in another place, the earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, from the east to the west, the world and all that dwells therein. You could say from Gilead to Manasseh, it is the Lord's. He will do with it as he will. Gilead himself was Manasseh's grandson, so there's even a picture of lineage and an interconnection between the two. Also, the land of Manasseh was the most prized of all of Canaan, and it was right in the center. The most fertile and valuable of all the property and real estate was located where that uh, tribe was privileged to dwell. 
So we have something in this picture, the idea that God owns all the riches, that which is central, the heart and lineage of his purposes and people are utterly and totally within his possession. Thirdly, purpose. He says, Ephraim is my helmet and Judah is my scepter. And here he, he shows something of how he will use his people. Ephraim, the judges go on to use Ephraim interchangeably with the northern tribes of Israel. So when you include Ephraim and Judah, which is used summarily as a, uh, Judah and Benjamin, it is another way of saying the whole people of God. Ephraim was known for its exploits and its strength. And so in this sense, that war implement of helmet, God is saying, I will accomplish my purposes and they will not be destroyed, destroyed or thwarted. And I will protect them uh, from my enemies as you go forward in the footsteps of my predestined will. This is the idea of Ephraim wearing the helmet. What about Judah as scepter? If you go to the Hebrew, you find that word can also mean lawgiver or literally chiseling out carving into stone. It means a standard. It means a righteous decree. It means law or uh, that which cannot be compromised, that which the sovereign has the authority to proclaim and that which his subjects are obligated to obey. So in this sense, God is saying, my law resides in my word through my people. Judah is my scepter. That is the benchmark reference point standard of righteousness that cannot be compromised without punishment. Now, the scepter of Judah is ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ's hands, is it not? From Judah, there will not depart one to rule over it, but there will be on the throne, as it were, one in the line of David to assert and to rule and to reign. And so Jesus does. He does so, it says in another place, Psalm 2, with a rod of iron, repeated again in Revelation at the close of the canon. And those who stand against his rule and his law, he smashes like pots of clay. Why? Because Ephraim is his helmet and Judah is his scepter, and in Christ they are fulfilled. So we see that he is sovereign over promise, possession, purpose, and finally perdition or judgment. Moab, Edom, and Philistia. So what do these refer to? Moab... All of these have sordid be, uh, beginnings, origins, and problematic interactions with the people of God. Moab was the son by incest of Lot. And Moab and the people, his lineage that followed him, became a real problem. Archetypical enemies of the people of God. In a similar way, Edom, Esau's relatives and descendants, Numbers 20, 14 through 21, they were the ones, as you recall, refused safe passage for the people who simply wanted to cross their land to reach Canaan. And this became sort of a harbinger of what would happen in the future. They would remain enemies and antagonists of the people of God. And of course, the Philistines, you know who they are. They're the ones who boasted the great giant that David himself slew. And the people cried out, you know, the women cried out, David has sl uh, slain his ten thousands. They were that warlike people that were a thorn in the side of Israel for years and years. They were the ones that uh, terrorized the people in Samson's day. So all these three are listed as kind of enemies that are almost like, you know, ever-present or part through the course of Israel's history that have been a real irksome uh, issue for them. What does Jesus say about, or what does the Lord say through his word about them? Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, 
over Philistia's shout in triumph. These enemies that you seem to be unable to defeat, for them they are nothing but a waste bin that God can throw his trash into, or an instrument of refuse. We find in Romans 9, do I not have power in so many words we hear in the words of Paul describing God's sovereignty and authority to make a vessel for dishonor and a vessel for honorable use. In a similar sense, this corrupt nation Moab is a vessel of dishonor. It's a wash base, and they will showcase the glory of the Lord in judgment when he casts them aside. In a similar way, Edom, over Edom I will cast my shoe. That's a picture according to Leveret law, you know, uh, those who are living relatives after a certain person had died had the obligation of continuing their family lineage. If they didn't do so, there is this symbolic act of casting out the shoe. We see this in the law. Ultimately, it's a picture of dispossession. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe, saying, get out of here, shoo them away, if you will. Be gone from my presence. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. The Lord will declare victory over his enemies. So in this section, from the perspective of God's voice to the people, it's a real perspective awakening. It's a real wake-up call for them. He is telling them by the connotational, if you will, value of these geographic references that He is God, He will fulfill His promises, He possesses all the earth, everything He does accomplishes His purposes, and those that seem to rear their ugly heads in rebellion for a season will ultimately be destroyed. They will suffer judgment and perdition will fall upon their head. This is the divine initiative that David celebrates again in his sober victory song. Notice, he doesn't say, I have slain my ten thousands, the way the people praised him before. He says, God has slain his ten thousands. He takes no credit in his own arm, but points to the strong arm of the Lord. He does not rally the people around himself and his administration. No, he speaks to them as a messenger of the one who is truly sovereign and powerful and says, bow to him. He is responsible for your victory, and if you are not in good standing with him, he will be responsible for your judgment. This is the song of worship that David lifts up, that the historical occasion of the defeat of his enemies offers. Thirdly and finally this morning, let us consider the message now from the king. The voice of the king echoes forth in verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. We think of when people are in a desperate way, Isaiah 3 speaks to this. Ten men will say, you have a cloak, you rule over us, you can be in charge of this heap of ruins. When a situation is dire and desperate, people cry out. They grasp for anybody that has a good idea for sound leadership. And those who are self-serving in this way, who have some kind of self-confidence and look for the opportunity to demonstrate that they are the ones that really have all the answers, this is a perfect setup for them to glory in themselves. And so all through the course of biblical and modern history, we see this kind of thing happening. 
A desperate people gives rise to a despotic leader. A desperate people gives rise to a despotic leader over and over again. Well, David, in David's day, he himself was unique. God's spirit was upon him. And though the people were desperate, he was not despotic. Why? Because when the people praised David, when they sought to make him their king, when they asked him, what can you do for us, and sought his counsel, what did he do? He would go before the Lord and ask questions like this. Who will bring me to the fortified city? These outlying strongholds. Who will lead us? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? In other words, if you are not with Saul, I cannot expect to have any success unless you return. This kingdom has suffered from your absence, and the only way for my rule to be successful is for you to go before us. Grant us help against the foe, he cries. Why? He recognizes vain is the salvation of man. But contrastingly, verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. David recognizes without God there is no plan B. There's no speak softly and carry a big stick. There's no new foreign policy that's going to give rise to an age of strong arm twisting diplomatic relations that will secure their future. There's no hope in, you know, the careful consultation of a unique group of experts in the Pentagon that can plot our next move on the chessboard of international relations to secure our, you know, uh, position of strength on the world stage. There is no plan B. It is God or he knows that there will be nothing, no hope, no security. What would be the answer in our modern times? The question comes forth, who will lead us to the fortified city? Who will protect us from ISIS? Well, that's a really relevant question, is it not? Who will protect us from the increasing lawlessness in the streets? Who will save us from all of the uncertainty on Wall Street? Who will bring us to the fortified city? Do people answer, vain is the salvation of man? They ought to, especially as church. Do our leaders say, with God we shall do valiantly? It is he who will tread down our foes? Or do they answer the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, Special Forces, NATO, the next presidential candidate, this carefully constructed plan? There is no plan B. Our hope is in the Lord and in him alone. Vain is the salvation of man. It pleases the Lord when man seeks his own salvation vainly to demonstrate the foolishness of that very act by making him subservient by fear and by slavery to his enemies. This always happens, and it will happen any time man seeks his own arm strength for salvation or looks to the arm strength of a despotic leader. With God we shall do valiantly, but there is no plan B. Plan B is vanity. David recognized this. What is the soteriology of our age? What is the message of salvation and hope? What is man's plan to secure our future? I probably mentioned this before, but it's just such a perfect illustration. I can't uh, resist bringing it up again. There's a video on the internet I've shown maybe a couple of you once or twice. Aaron first showed it to me, drew my attention to it. It's called Future 2045. And it's this global congress of world experts and leaders, you know, representatives from all the great successive progressive humanistic nations and powerhouses the globe over. And they get together 
We're going to plan our future. We all want peace, don't we? Yeah, we all want peace. We all want progress, don't we? Yeah, we all want progress. So they get their eggheads together and all their technology and they come up with a plan. How will we save ourselves? And if you watch that video, it is extremely religious and extremely demonic. Basically, we will transcend our humanity by entering into a new world. We will seek new problems. War will become obsolete. Yeah, right. There is only one way that war will become obsolete. The Prince of Peace will put all his enemies under his feet. There is only one successful United Nations people in all of history, and they come by the power of Christ's blood to redeem from every tribe and tongue and nation. There is no born again. There is no new humanity. There is no hope for the future by any other means. It is merely the vanity of man's salvation plans, and it will fail. But with God, we shall do valiantly. Now, God's plan does not always appear impressive on the surface, does it? When Adam and Eve admitted finally upon the pain of judgment and remembering, knowing full well their sin in the garden, they cried out, oh, Lord, can't you just start over maybe, they were asking. When God said that there would be a seed born of woman that would crush the serpent's head, it, probably wasn't the it was probably the furthest thing from their mind that they expected that would be the plan of salvation for the future. But while man scoffs, and while the pagan says things have continued from, as they were from the beginning, and Christ will never come again, I doubt he even came, God's plan marches on. And that seed grows, it blossoms, it takes root, and it produces fruit. And the kingdom of God slowly and incrementally, according to his predestined plan, begins to take more and more ground as you and I, if you're in Christ today, and every one of his elect are reaped into the storehouses of glory. And as this happens, what is going on? The Lord's enemies are being downtrodden under the feet of our Messiah. Yes, he would bruise his heel, but that heel would crush his head. Genesis 3.15 is picked up in this language. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Christ treaded down our foes, if you will, on the cross of Calvary, where the greatest of all enemies was defeated, our sin and death itself. Christ treads down all his foes through history as he declares his kingdom come and his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. So join him, saints. Join him for your soul's sake, for your sanity's sake. Join him as he marches forward through history declaring his victory. Lastly and in closing, Matthew 26. We read again, did we not, of the wine that when we are caused to drink, destroys, totters, makes us stagger. There was a cup that our Lord Jesus Christ drank and he did so on that night, planned before the creation of the world. And its effect was the most glorious Declaration of victory in all of human history. The cosmos has never and will never known a more glorious, victorious, valiant moment than this. Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, Christ speaking, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, 
if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. One thing that we can be eternally thankful for is that Christ drank that cup. When Christ took upon himself and fully embraced the wrath of the Father, the propitiatory death for our sins on Calvary, he downtrod all of our enemies under his sovereign foot. And he announced to the devil, to the forces of wickedness, for all time, your days are numbered. You will look forward to an eternity bound in chains in a fiery pit. Meanwhile, all who trust in my right hand, powerful to save, the right hand that was stretched out on the cross of Calvary, will rule and reign with me one day. And there will be no more sin, sorrow, and every enemy utterly destroyed. This is the power of the gospel. David knew it prophetically. We know it in fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Let us rest assured in these promises this morning. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful this morning that we have nothing to fear. Lord, we see the necessity of taking seriously, reverentially, the fear of you. But if we take seriously your word, there is no other word, Lord, that can compete, that can even compete for our attention and for our peace when we rest assured in the word of Christ. It silences the mockers and the scoffers. It stands when others fade. It never withers. It never fails. It is the rock and the foundation upon which, Lord, even in the storms, we can stand secure. Build us there, plant us there, root us and ground us there, we pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, in this day where the earth of society and many other things totters, so to speak, under our feet. Help us to stand steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of Christ as we contemplate the assurance of victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Finally, Lord, if there are any here who do not know that hope, who do not know that salvation, I pray that they would hear in the message of your scriptures today a call, repent and believe. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death to purge you from sin and reign victorious in him. I thank you, Lord, for these moments that you have so graciously given. Let us not squander them, but let us implement them and apply this word for your glory and namesake this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.